it's depressing on one hand, it's a reminder of uh, all kinds of other things on the other. Uh, their president, Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, continues to be in the news as well in his appeals to countries around the world, the EU, I think it was a joint session of Congress he spoke to as well. Um, it's interesting, uh, the, the world, the time of news and fake news, and you, you don't know what to believe. You read something or you hear something, heard all kinds of things about one direction or the other on the war. What's certainly indisputable is that civilians are being murdered, that the country is being reduced to rubble. That's the method of warfare. They said stage one is over. Those cities, uh, uh, Putin is doing in Ukraine what he did with the Syrians in Syria is reducing the the country to rubble if he can't uh, defeat them otherwise militarily, he's simply removing uh, everything around them. So Zelensky is asking for help all the time, every day. He's asking for help, some of which he, he knows he won't get at all, but he's asking for help all the time. And you've got this treacherous situation. If you remember, go back just a few months, you remember when Russian troops started being positioned along the Ukrainian border, Putin, the liar, the treacherous one, the faithless one says, we're just doing military exercises. And then the weeks and the months go by and then he says, well, Ukraine's actually a threat to us. And then he says, oh, and by the way, they're Nazis and we gotta take them out for their own welfare. So you go from one thing to another to another. So indisputably, uh, war crimes, civilians, three million at least have moved. The death count is unknown. They know it's at least in the thousands, but they don't know more. So you've got this treachery occurring to a country in which the leader of that country, for his own sake and for the sake of the country, is asking everyone for all the help he can get by any means possible. We're in the series called Like a Tree this morning. That title is taken from Psalm 1. This will be a few months ago at least. You remember the picture of the vital person in relationship with God is described like a tree by a stream or a canal of water. It's always green, it's always vital. That pictured primarily through the, the truth, the sustaining nature of God's word. This morning, we're in Psalm 25, and in this song, David is calling out to God for help. Like Zelensky, he's making one request after another for a multitude of things, all with the hope that a treacherous enemy seeking to harm him and his nation will be thwarted by God. David's hope isn't in himself. He's in a situation that's beyond his ability and resources, and he knows it. And that's the backdrop to the whole song. Life has thrown me a situation in which others that I should have been able to trust in some fashion have proved treacherous, and the, the, it's such that my resources are inadequate to respond to the need of the moment. That's, that's the setting behind it. This song is an acrostic. It's an acrostic, so that means that if we were reading this in Hebrew, the first word of each verse would start in the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if it was in English, <clears throat> excuse me, we would say the first line began with a word that started with A. The second line began with a word that started with B, etc. And you remember for Jews back in the day, we take Bibles and print and written things for granted, but that was not true in their day. There were no books. We were a long way from the printing press. So most Jews heard God's word. They weren't able to read it. Scrolls were hard to come by. So they heard it. So one of the things you'll see, especially in the Psalms, there's eight 
if you count Psalm 9 and 10 as one occasion. There's eight of them throughout the Psalms. And that acrostic was a way to get some handles on the song so you could memorize it. You know, we use rhyme patterns. We use metric and rhyme patterns. Well, one of the things they used was this a repetition of the Hebrew alphabet as a way to remember what the next line started with. <clears throat> this song is a plea for God's help written by King David, though again, we don't know the specifics. We know generally what the setting was like. Alan Ross, and you'll hear me quote him. You've heard it already, and I'll quote him again through this series. He has a three-volume commentary on Psalms. It's sort of the the most recent up-to-date one. It's very good, too. If you just wanted to read it for your own devotionals, it would be well worth your time. He says this about the song. It's an unconventional lament. So it's a lament. David's pouring out his heart to God. I'm having trouble. I've got trouble all around me, and I'm, and I'm just coming to you, and I'm laying it all out. But he says it's unconventional. It's filled with complaints, petitions, and expressions of trust. His summary is this. When the people of God are threatened by cruel enemies, they must pray for deliverance from their troubles, along with forgiveness for sins and guidance in the way of the Lord as they try to live in a treacherous world. That's a good, succinct encapsulation of this song. So we'll read this just like we did last time. We'll read the whole song, then we'll go back and we'll hit some of the high points. The heading is of David. I'm reading in the ESV, just FYI. To you, O Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous or faithless. Verse 4, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. 
for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. We're going to start in verses 1 through 3. Look at verse 1 just on the front end. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Guys, I hope this is something that we do all the time, that whatever's going on that's troubled our life, our souls, our emotions, our provision, our affections, we do what David did, which is we come before God and we give those things to him in prayer. And what you'll find is you're liberated and your soul is lightened when we come to God and we give him those things, specifically in David's situation, those things we can't overcome ourselves. There's, there are issues going on, and Lord, I'm coming before you in prayer, and I'm laying it out before you. Totally apart from anything that happens after you do that, what you'll generally find is your soul is lightened. You have joy or you have peace again simply because you've taken those things to God and you've laid them out before him. Apart from what he chooses to do, you'll feel relieved just because you've done what David is doing here bringing to God those things that concern you. Now, at verse 2, I want to join this issue that David brings up. There are two things, but they're related. Verse 2, he says, Oh, my God, in you I trust. Oh, my God, in you I trust. So, Lord, I trust you. But then what you'll see in this psalm is that trust is joined to this concept of waiting on God. That trust in God leads to waiting on God. So verse 2, O oh my God, in you I trust. Verse 3, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Verse 5, for you I wait all the day long. Verse 15, in the midst of waiting, my eyes are always toward the Lord. And verse 21, for I wait for you. Whatever the oppression, whatever the treachery and the faithlessness David was seeing in his day, the enemy's treacherous and faithless. He can't overcome whatever the challenges are. He goes to God. He lays it out. He says, Lord, you're my trust. And because I trust you and you haven't given me what I already need to overcome these circumstances, I'm going to wait on you for your deliverance. Because I trust you, Lord, I'm going to wait for you. I want to define waiting here. We had an interesting discussion in home group Last week, by the way, are you in any of the small groups in the church where you're known and others know you and you support them and they support you? We are in home group and this discussion rose around what does waiting on God look like? So as we talk about waiting on God, let me define by three ways what we're talking about and what we're not talking about and what David was doing. So first, waiting on God is not passive, it's active. What David's describing is an activity. It's not he's sitting back and he gave it to God and he's forgotten about it. It's active in its nature. And, and think of this. Um, if, have you ever trained a dog and you give them treats and you tell that dog, sit? And he knows when he sits, he does what you told him to, he gets the treat. Well, blank stares. You guys haven't trained dogs. We've trained these dogs, right? <laughs> That dog, and he's, you say sit, and he knows he did it, so he's waiting for the treat. Our dog, Jordy, she's waiting for the treat, and she's sitting there. Now, guys, she's waiting, but she's waiting with anticipation. And, you know, she can hardly sit there long enough because she knows the treat is coming. She's waiting, but it's active. Or if you saw someone in a doctor's office and they're waiting to hear a lab result, do I have cancer or not? Am I pregnant or not? 
I'm waiting on some news that's important, and I'm sitting there on the edge of my seat. I'm waiting, but my attitude is engaged. My thoughts, my emotions are engaged. That's what David's talking about by waiting. So in fact, he says, I think it was verse 15, uh, my eyes are on you. Like that dog in training, David says, Lord, um, I trust you and I'm looking to you, actively waiting on looking to you until you answer and give me the answer that I need for whatever's going on. So that's, that's the waiting itself. It's active, it's not passive. The second thing is waiting on God is in regard to those particular challenges that we understand we haven't already been given ability to deal with. So David's in a situation he can't, he doesn't have the resources to meet and he knows it. So he can't go do something and solve his dilemma. So when God's already given us, if God's told us to obey, here's these things I want you to do and here's the provision to do it, we don't wait on God to do what he told us to do. You know what I mean? This is different. We're doing the things God's commanded us to do that he's given us provision for. And three is related, on, related to that one. Waiting on God doesn't absolve us from continuing to be responsible with the other things we've otherwise been given the command to do and the ability to carry out. So if I'm waiting on God for one thing, I don't stop doing the other things God's given me the ability to do. My faithfulness or my obedience in the, all those other areas don't stop because I'm waiting on God for one thing. So it's active, it's related to the thing that I can't take care of myself, and it doesn't absolve me from the other responsibilities in life that I should keep doing as I wait on this particular thing. That's what we're talking about. Now David knew something about the failure to wait on God because he had seen it. So 1 Samuel 13 is on your study sheet. Briefly the story is this, Saul is king. He's been told by the prophet Samuel, prophet Samuel is also a priest, to wait for Samuel to come down. And while Saul is waiting, the Philistine army is coming and his army is melting away into the hills. And so rather than wait till Samuel gets there, Saul takes on himself the, the responsibility and the privilege of priesthood, which wasn't his to take. And he offers the sacrifices, asking God to bless him while he disobeys God. And no sooner does he do that than Samuel shows up and Samuel says, what have you done? Because you didn't wait, because you took matters into your own hands, Samuel tells him, for God, your kingdom will not be established. Of course, his is a pitiful end and he has one son, one relative who reigns briefly, but Saul's house does not continue as king in Israel because Saul did not wait. 1 Samuel 13. One of David's descendants, King Hezekiah, is a great example of appropriately waiting on God, 2 Kings 19. You can read these later, but briefly, the Assyrian army was on the move during Hezekiah's reign, and they are the big kids on the block, and Sennacherib, their king, his army is just rolling through the opposition. And guys, when this occurs in Israel, in Judah... Jerusalem is the only city that has not already been conquered by him. Every walled city he's already taken. And he's going down to Egypt. And he's diverted for a while because he's told Hezekiah, I'm coming for you. And so he's diverted. He sends a letter to Hezekiah and he says, hey, make no mistake, your God can't help you. And I'm coming and I'm going to roll down right over you just the way I have everyone else. That's what he says in the letter. So Hezekiah takes that letter in to God, just like David did here. 
there's a situation he cannot deal with on his own. He takes the letter, the threatening letter, he takes it into God and he says, Lord, this is the thing. And he said, everything in here this guy says is true. No one has stopped him. And he's coming here. What do we do? Lord, you're our trust. We wait on you. And that's, this is one of the big miracle stories in the Old Testament outside of Moses' time. This is when the text says the angel of the Lord comes and sovereignly wipes out the Assyrian army outside the walls of Jerusalem. Hezekiah waited on God. Saul didn't. And David had seen Saul and he heard what happened. Hezekiah had God's word as well. He would have been aware of these as well. Waiting on God is a key theme in Scripture. The willingness to wait on God to deliver us or otherwise provide is often a test of faith. Will I wait on God or will I take matters into my own hand? Waiting on God is described as the means of trusting God 14 times in nine different songs. It's repeated because it's a big deal and it, it, it's throughout the Old Testament scriptures, not just the songs. Uh, Isaiah 40 verse 31, perhaps one of the more famous outside of Psalms, those who wait for the Lord, they'll renew their strength. They'll mount up on wings like eagles because God's gonna do that for them, right? Because they're, they're trusting him, they're waiting on him and so God says, I'm here for you. That's faith, that's faithfulness to me. I'm going to intervene for you. I'll do what you can't do for yourself. Guys, some of us have challenges now. Some of us will have challenges in the future in life that we cannot meet. We're waiting for better health, some of us. Or we're waiting for a spouse. Or we're waiting for children. Or we're waiting for obedient children. Some of you are taking a, ch a child parenting class. God bless you. Keep it up. Uh, but that we face school or business, all kinds of things where we have challenges, we don't have the resources, the ability to meet, we should do what David did. We take those things to God in prayer and then we wait on him. That's the hallmark of faith. Proverbs 3 verses 5 through 7 is a great memory verse for that same kind of time in life. David's wise enough not to trust in his own understanding, his own abilities in the face of treachery, he isn't able to reverse by himself. He's humble enough and faithful enough, having come to God with his problem, to wait on God for the solution. Look at verses 4 and 5. Uh, David's trusting on God on one hand, but guys, he's self-aware on the other. And this is honesty. You know, I, I love this uh, because it's honest. David says, Lord, I trust you. I'm waiting. And he says, by the way, I know my own propensities. I know my, my tendency to take matters into my own hand. So he prays that God will take him in hand to keep him in the place God knows is best. I trust you, Lord. I'm waiting for you. And would you help me to wait faithfully? So verse 4, make me know your ways, O Lord. As I'm waiting, he says, your ways, not my ways. Teach me your paths. Verse 5, Lead me in your truth and teach me. So in his trusting and his waiting, he's still asking God to work in his life in a way he cannot mess up. That he'll get it wrong. Uh, I was part of a service uh, years ago, a different church. And I remember the few of us, just like here in the morning, we were praying right before the service started. <laughs> and one of the brothers you know, you want God to be honored. You want people to be blessed and encouraged. And that prayer, this one brother's prayer was short and sweet. He says, Lord, help us not mess it up. 
It's like that was it. You know, our heart's there. We want to do the right thing. But we realize we can mess it up. Lord, help us not mess it up. David knows that like a wayward sheep, he's prone to wander. And he's asking God to be at work so that he's compelled to stay on the path of life God knows is best. We looked a little bit at that same theme in Psalm 23 last time. So this theme or this truth or this notion that I can say to God on one hand, Lord, I I trust you and I'm waiting for you while recognizing my bent on the other side that I may still go off the rails. Uh, John Donne was uh, an English poet, 15 and 1600s, and uh, his sonnet, uh, 14th sonnet, Batter My Heart, Three-Person God, Guys, there's almost nothing else like it in my mind in the English language that so speaks to this notion of, Lord, I love you and I trust you and I see how vitally broken I am so that if you don't compel me, if you don't do this thing for me, not just with me, for me, I'm going to go off the rails. It will not happen. uh, Some of the closing lines, you know, like Shakespeare's sonnets, the last lines are sort of the clincher. It's, uh, unless you enthrall me, I never will be free. Unless you ravish me, I'll never be, sorry, I'm blowing it. It's a rhyme. Pure. It's a great, great, and it speaks to this. It speaks to this notion David sees in himself, my heart's with you on one hand, but I realize I'm broken and fractured, and I need you to do for me and in me what I can't consistently do for myself If you think of that old hymn, it's along the same line. Come thou fount of every blessing, says in part, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I'm prone to leave the God I love? Guys, that's insanity, isn't it? But scripture says insanity is part of our fractured humanness. And so it's reflected in the hymn of that song. Take my heart, O take and seal it with thy spirit from above. That's effectively what David's praying. It's that same thought. Lord, I want to do right by you, but I realize how prone I am not to. I'm asking you to do something in me and for me. If you look at Psalm 73, verse 6, it's a little bit of that same thing. That's a psalm of Asaph. He said, my flesh and my heart may fail. My humanity, my motivations. When he says they may fail, what do we assume? They will fail. He says, this is the thing, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In fact, it's a great psalm, Lord willing. We'll look at it in the future. It says, God has hold of me by the hand. What's my security going forward? It's not myself. God is the one that takes me by the hand. Have you ever, if you're a parent, if you had the little junior and he wants to go do one thing and you hold him by the hand because he's not going to go do what he wants to run off and do by himself. You hold him by the hand. He's kept because you're keeping him, not because he's keeping himself. And that's the thought there. Same thing for David. Lord, save me from myself and my deficient thoughts, habits, and temptations. Keep me in the place and the way you know is best. Uh, Verses 6 and 7 are uh, almost humorous to me. Uh, David's asking God to interact with him according to God's own benevolent nature and character, not David. So listen to this in verse 6. So in the prayer, David says, uh, Lord, would you remember... Okay, so what is, in David's need, what is he asking God to remember? He says, God, would you remember your mercy? Lord, remember, do, do we need to remind God that he's merciful? Does, 
Has there been a lapse of memory? No. But David's in a fix, and so he's asking God to look at him in his situation in a certain way. So he says, remember your mercy. We would say compassion, pity, love. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, your faithful love, your loving kindness. Remember, the enemy in this song has practiced treachery, faithlessness. So when David talks to God about this, he says, Lord, would you remember your faithfulness, your steadfastness towards me? Because what I'm on the receiving end now is more of treachery and faithlessness. Lord, we can count on you to be faithful. Would you remember your faithfulness? And then look at verse 7 to see what he asks him not to remember. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgression. So when David comes to God in prayer... He, he, he comes, he's, he's compromised, isn't he? Because he feels the weight of his own past sins. So he says, God, would you not remember the sins of my youth? Lord, I'm in trouble if you look at my life for adequate reasons to bless and save me. So instead, would you act out of your own loyal and loving heart in helping me now? Or we could say, save me, Lord, not because I'm such a great guy, but because you're such a great God. The appeal is to God and his nature and his character. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. These are good memory verses too. Oh Lord, if you mark iniquity, Lord, if you put the metric of perfection up and you mark sin, oh Lord, who could stand? No one. But the hope is, but with you, Lord, there is forgiveness that you may be feared, that you may be held in awe and reverence that I know I can draw near to you. So if it's all about just measuring up, we're in trouble. But he says, we know there's forgiveness. And by the way, we need to insert here. Guys, there's no magical forgiveness, is there? God doesn't wave a wand and say, you're forgiven. In fact, a perfectly just God cannot merely forgive because he would cease to be just. So when we say, and David pleads, God, would you forgive me? That, that plea for forgiveness has to be based on God's justice, doesn't it? Because he can't forgive otherwise. He can never be untrue to his own nature, the perfection of his own character. So that plea for forgiveness has to be based on something that provides forgiveness for sinners like us. So every request for plea that can be answered or plea for forgiveness that can be answered by God is predicated on the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead for our justification. And you know, we get this right when we say the perfection of God's justice and the perfection of God's love are all met in the cross of Christ. His justice is answered for sin because sin has been perfectly met and covered by Jesus' atoning sacrifice. God can forgive now justly. And you remember it says in Romans that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the proof of our justification. He can now say, not only are you forgiven, but you, you have perfect righteous standing before me because you're in Christ and Christ is in you. So we want to make sure that when we're reading these passages and these pleas for forgiveness, forgiveness is costly. And God can't give it unless there's a way to do so justly. And the only way God can forgive sinners is through Christ's atoning sacrifice. In Psalm 18, we saw David asking for God to interact with him in faithfulness based on David's faithfulness. Do you remember? Not because David was perfect, 
but because he'd been living consistent with the covenant that he was in with God. He was doing the things God said to do. But here it's a different matter. He's aware of his own checkered past, his many failings before a holy God. In light of his failure, he asks God for help based on God's loyal love. Now, you and I have the ability, and again, related to prayer and where we started here, as God's children through faith in Christ, we have the privilege of approaching God in the merits of Christ. So when we go before God, <clears throat> we don't say, <clears throat> excuse me, before I forget, there's this lovely, lovely story, and I won't remember all the, the incidentals, sorry. I don't know if this is the 18 or 1900s. Uh, the, 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 whoever was left from the Austro-Hungarian Empire had died, and he was going to be buried. Well, when they take and they, they mark the case on that carries his casket, they, they take it through town, everybody's mourning, and they get to the door of the place that he's going to be, his body's going to be interred. And the guy bangs on the door, and someone answers from an inn, who, who is it? And they, uh, the, the herald, he yells out all these titles of this prince, this king who had overseen this empire. And the door doesn't open. And, and they, he calls out more of the things that describe the power and the standing of this king. And the door doesn't open. And at the end, he says, a poor sinner approaches and the door opens. That's the thought for us too. David's king of Israel, but he does not approach God on his own merits or his standing. He's approaching God as a sinner aware of his sin, saying, Lord, don't remember that. Remember who you are and your perfections, your steadfast, faithful, loyal love. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, maybe read when you get home. But guys, we remember, this is important to me for this reason. This text says Jesus, who offered the perfect sacrifice as the perfect high priest, stands now in God's presence in heaven as your high priest that your sins have been atoned for, he's gone before you. And that's why Hebrews 4 says, come with boldness to the very throne of God to receive mercy and help in your time of need, just like David did here. You have that guarantee. We don't stand on the threshold asking, and we don't wait for the king to put the, you know, the, uh, what was the Babylonian kings? The, I forget, Sorry. The scepter, you know, I'm, I'm either I'm toast or I get to be brought in. There's no question. We're told to come boldly into the throne room of God, right into his presence. Our sins covered by Jesus, our high priest standing there in testimony of that so that we can get the help we need in our times of trouble. So this is the way we should be living life, bringing those things to God in prayer. David's confidence in prayer and ours is ultimately not about our faithfulness, but God's. We don't approach God in prayer with confidence because we're all that, but because Jesus is. Verses 8 through 15, David can pray boldly as he does because he knows God. Verse 8 is good and upright. Verse 10 is steadfast in love and faithfulness. Because David knows what God is like, he can pour out all these these claims or these requests or, or Lord help me. Because he knows God is good and upright, steadfast in faithfulness and love, he can say, Lord, would you instruct sinners like me? Verse eight. Verse nine, would you lead and teach the humble? Verse 11, would you pardon our guilt? Verse 12, would you instruct us in the way to go? 
Think of James 1, verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask a God who gives to all men liberally. Verse 14, uh, who can be counted on to give us counsel and understanding. Just FYI, I'm a fan of the ESV, which is what I teach from, but I'm not a fan of this verse. And in fact, I think if you look in their footnotes, they'll, they'll uh, say that counsel could also be understood as secret. Uh, Legacy translation, NASB, New King James, Darby's all say the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. The secret. The thought is this. Uh, I'm in right relationship with God. I, I'm in awe of him. I fear him. And you know what? When I need to hear something, God can come right down to my ear and he can whisper. Darby's translation, the secret communication of the Lord is with them that fear him. It's, the, it's intimacy, right? It's not just um, I'm in the room and I heard God say something. It's intimacy, so I've come to God, I need help, and God whispers what I need to hear in my ear. It's this secret, intimate communication born of that loving relationship. That's what we don't want to lose at verse 14. Verse 11, for your namesake, this is a big theme throughout the song. David's counting on God being true to his nature when he asks for forgiveness. And this is a, a bring in song, uh, Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. So remember, uh, David... David read his Bible, right? And David's Bible in his day wasn't the, the big complete one we have today, but it was the first five books of the Bible. It was certainly Joshua, and it might have included all or part of Judges as well. So David knew the passage that we'll read briefly here. So back in the day when Moses is with God and he's getting the law, you know, they're there at Sinai spending all that time with God. You remember, in fact, it says his face shone, his presence with God, he's, in front of God and his face shone. And God in one place says, I speak to Moses face to face. And, and he didn't mean face to face like I see Joe's face. Joe sees my face. Because Moses says to him later, he says, Lord, man, I'm loving what's going on, but I want to see you. I, I want to see you face to face. I want to see you as you are. And do you remember God's response is, Mo, that's not happening because you can't live and see me. No man can see me and live. But he said, this is what I'll do. I'll put you in this little rock and I'll walk by. And when I've walked by, you can see me from the back. And that's what I'll do for you. That's my answer to your prayer, to your request. So when God's going by Moses, he's communicating when he says, he says what's true of him. He's defining himself, his nature and his character. Because Moses... He's met with the Lord. He's heard all kinds of things. But now God is specifically and personally telling Moses who he is and what he's like. Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. That's thousands of generations. Not thousand seconds, thousand minutes. Thousands of generations forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. David knew this. And that's why he has this confidence to approach God because God has defined himself. And he says, man, I'm slow to anger. Now, when he gets angry, it's not good. It builds up over a long time. And when God says he acts in anger, you don't want to be in front of him. That's for sure. But he's slow. He's patient. He's merciful. He pities us. That's who he is. And that's what he's like. And that's what David knew. Uh, verse 15, my eyes are ever towards the Lord because he knows God is good. And how, how often is God good? God is good all the time. 
All the time, God is good. The God who saves us, the God who keeps us, is characterized by grace and mercy, patience, steadfastness in his determination to forgive us, bless us, and provide for us in our needs. Like David, our needs, our crises become lenses by which we see more of God's goodness and grace. David knew that, and hopefully we do too. God, that when crises come upon us, we don't just wig out, we don't freak out. We do what David did. We take those to God. If we can't handle it, we say, Lord, we trust you, and we wait on you, and we should have a measure of peace and joy anticipating how God's going to answer. And guys, if God's answer to your prayer for deliverance was death, that would be a good day. And that would be a lovely answer to prayer, wouldn't it? God save me. I'm going to end your life today. Thank you. I'm in God's presence, free of my sinful self, enjoying God face to face forever. That's a pretty good day. So <clears throat> when we pray, and you know one of the great disappointments in life is we go to God and we say, hey, Lord, I need this or that or I want this or I want that. All of which I, is generally fine to make those appeals to God. But when we do so, we need to remember that whatever God's response is, is always perfect. God's response to your prayers and mine, it's never deficient. It's always perfect. It's always everything it should be. And, and we know this. Romans 8 has a bit of logic that is irrefutable, and it's this. If God the Father gave Jesus for your sins, Jesus, God the Son, the one in the universe he loves the most, the delight of his heart, that which he values above everything else, if God the Father gave Jesus to save you, what would he withhold from you? Nothing. So when you pray, whatever God's prayer is, you can always be assured it's the perfect response because God is interacting with us in light of Jesus. He gave us Jesus, the most expensive thing possible. He wouldn't withhold any other thing that was good for us. It's, it's a logical statement. You can count on it. We can count on it. So if we pray and God doesn't answer the way we wanted, we should still be able to say, Lord, thank you because I know your response is perfect. Help me to see what that looks like. Help, help me to lay hold of that, to grasp that, that your answer, you gave me something I didn't want. You didn't give me something I did want. You made me live in a situation I wouldn't have asked for. God says, everything I'm doing for my children is done in the bonds of love. It can't be otherwise. Can't be otherwise. Um, have you ever been afraid of asking God for too many things? Most of us probably not, but a few, a few I know. If you count up, you might get a little different count. There's at least 17 direct requests David makes in one song. 22 verses, there's at least 17. You could count 18 to 20 depending on how you parse them. You can't overwhelm God with your requests. David wasn't afraid to put all his needs and requests before the Lord, knowing God would ultimately do what was best. He says, Lord, I'm lonely. We've probably all been lonely. Lord, I'm lonely. I need your grace. My soul is troubled, Lord. I can't save myself. My soul's troubled. Save me. I'm afflicted. And maybe I'm being afflicted because of things I've done. Forgive me. Lord, look at how many are trying to harm me. Would you guard me? You see, they just roll up. When our girls were young, and occasionally I'd come home from work, 
And, uh, you know, if you'd see one of your kids, you'd know things are not well, and maybe they would say something. And so probably not as frequently as I should have. But I would say, uh, sit down and tell me every little thing. Just sit down and, and just get it all out. You know, it's not, not necessarily that I'll be able to do anything or change anything, but just unload. And I'll just sit here and I'll just listen. You tell me every little thing. When we go to God, we can afford to tell him every little thing. And he's okay with that. He can take that. And whatever his answers to prayer are, are still perfect. But you can go. You can unload. You're not overwhelming God. You're not doing anything inappropriate when you lay it all out before him. And then, guys, verses 20 through 21 David's requests continue until he ends right where he began. I take refuge in you. I wait for you. So he started by saying, Lord, I trust you, and so I'll wait for you. Now he says, I take refuge in you. I'm waiting for you. And because what happened to David affected the nation, verse 22, he closed on, redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. <clears throat> Guys, what's the impact our lives have on others? for good or for ill, <clears throat> all of us affect other people. All of us do. You could be a hermit and you'd still affect someone. How is our life affecting others? David knew that if he wasn't delivered from this treachery, Israel was going to suffer as well. Those around him were going to suffer as well. A lot of times when we're praying for ourselves, we're bringing others with us because the interaction we have with God in our life is going to interact with others as well through us. What are our troubles? What are they? Have we taken them to the Lord in prayer? Have we left them with the Lord? Are, are we actively waiting to see how God will interact and what his answer will be? Do we know he's trustworthy because he's given us Christ? He won't withhold any good thing. That's a good place to be. Well, if you would, stand and your study sheet has this. I always put it out beforehand so that you can read it before we rise at the end of a message. So the words of this prayer are inspired from this psalm, from Psalm 25. If these reflect your heart, why please pray with me now. Father, we approach you in the worthiness of Christ, thanking you that our sins are forgiven and we are your children. And like